Good morning. My name is uh, Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you are with us this morning. And we uh, have some news that we want to celebrate uh, this morning. Uh, and it has to do here with my uh, friend, Pastor Neil Pitchell. So uh, Neil has been on staff for 20... Almost 23 years. Almost 23 years. We'll give you the 23. Right. Uh, and Neil has served as a, kind of a, like a CFO over all of Redemption, has also had that role here, in particular with Gilbert. Uh, he also per- serves as a pastor over central operations, so basically kind of like the things that make Redemption Church go. And then here, uh, he has served uh, faithfully as our SALT uh, pastor. So there you go. There's someone from SALT. Uh, that's our senior adult community, uh, and it's such a vibrant and super, super important integral part of our, of our church. Uh, and uh, so Neil has been threatening for the past four years to retire, uh, and he's finally able to pull that off. And so we celebrate him and what he has done. Um, uh, We've been talking about this for a, for a while, for four <laughs> years, but there's a, there's, a, there's a passage of Scripture that makes me uh, think of Neil. Proverbs 3, verse 3 and 4 says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And there's two things that you've modeled just so well for me personally and for uh, our pastors on staff and really throughout Redemption um, and for our church. And that's just love and faithfulness. So Neil is the guy who works uh, in benevolence. Uh, so when people are uh, having a difficult season in their life, Neil walks with them through that and, and supports them uh, with resources. Neil's also the guy um, primarily who does funerals and graveside services. Uh, Neil is the one who's um, holding people's hands on their last days. Um, and just shows the love of Jesus in really difficult times and places. And then um, faithfulness, you have been, uh, you've set the standard for uh, not only myself, but pastors throughout Redemption of what it looks like to faithfully steward not just resources, but opportunity and this position of pastor. And uh, particularly in some of the most difficult seasons uh, of my life personally, but also the life of our church. Um, and you have just stood strong and stood tall, and, um, and you do have a great name. Uh, you have a good name before God, and you have a good name um, before so many, and so I just want to thank you for being such a good friend to me, you and Katie, uh, to me and Lauren, but also the way that you've loved uh, this church and redemption and the way that you've just faithfully shown the love and faithfulness of Jesus. So, Thanks, but, Yeah. But I know, I know there's some things that you need to say, that you want to say. <laughs> I wanted to uh, take this opportunity to say thank you. Uh, Thank you for allowing me the honor and the privilege of serving as a pastor here on this campus. And uh, it has been an incredible privilege for me. Uh, and the opportunity to watch you so faithfully and generously support our church, your commitment to Christ, to this community, and to this church has been an inspiration to me. We are in an incredibly strong 
financial position as a church, not because of my management, but because of your generosity and God's faithfulness. It has been a privilege and a pleasure, like I said, to, to serve. Uh, before coming to Redemption uh, in 2000, I uh, worked in industry for 11 years and then took a position at Bethany Community Church in Tempe uh, in 1989 uh, before joining East Valley Bible Church, uh, who, along with Praxis, were the founding churches for Redemption Arizona. And as Paul mentioned, I've served in the executive team and the lead team uh, for uh, Redemption Arizona while serving as a pastor here uh, at uh, Redemption Gilbert. I am absolutely overwhelmed uh, that this little Jewish guy from Boston has gotten to do the things that God has allowed me to do. I have not had any seminary training nor any Bible classes, yet God has allowed me to teach his word both here from the platform and in uh, other opportunities like in, in SALT. Uh, he has allowed me into your lives uh, through the memorial services and weddings and baptisms and all the other opportunities that has given me. So again, I want to say thank you. I also want to let you know that uh, the gentleman who God has raised up to replace me uh, is a man by the name of Todd Haugie. Todd is a proven leader in industry. Uh, he has been a member and a leader at Redemption Gateway for almost eight years. He is imminently qualified to lead Redemption into this next stage of its history. Uh, but while I am retired, I will continue to teach SALT. I will continue to be an elder. I will continue to lead my redemption community. Uh, I'll continue to advise on finances. I just won't get paid anymore. <laughs> I want to say thank you to my wife, Kate. Uh, we have been married for 45 years, and uh, uh, she has been uh, an encouragement and a supporter all along the way. I want to say thank you to this elder team who I've had the opportunity to serve with, as Paul said, in both exciting and also difficult times. They have men of great faith who love this church and this community, and I'm grateful that the staff uh, that is currently in place, led by Paul and Jeremy, was a solid group. Um, so there is a great future ahead as we continue to shine Christ's light uh, in a dark uh, and thirsty world. So, again, I want to say thank you. We just want to uh, pray over you and kind of commission you in this next uh, season of life. And so we just want to lay hands. Would you guys just pray alongside with us, Liz, too? Uh, gracious Father, you are so good to us. Uh, you have been so good to this church, and uh, Neil is evidence of that, of how you raised up the right man for the right time. Um, we just thank you uh, for his love for you. Uh, we thank you for his love for the church and its people, and uh, just making it all about Jesus. Uh, uh, he's been a great example of grace and truth in my life and in the elder board's life and in this church staff and uh, congregation. and. Uh, we just want to send him off with a, a blessing for his next stage of life. Uh, we know that you'll use him. We have confidence in that and are excited about that. And uh, we just pray that it's a, a wonderful journey for him and Kate uh, as, as they head forward. So we thank you again for him, and it's all because of you.
Amen. Thank you. Well, uh, in honor of my Hebrew friend and brother, we're starting a series in the book of Isaiah today. Uh, Neil is our resident Old Testament scholar. So uh, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Isaiah is kind of just right in the center of the the book in the Old Testament. But we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 40. And really, uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, going through Isaiah chapter 40 through 55 as a lead up into Good Friday and Easter. A lot of times what happens is just because of the hustle and bustle of life and just because of just kind of the frantic nature of how life is and the speed at which it moves, we just kind of arrive at things like Good Friday and Easter, and we haven't really given it a lot of thought. We haven't really set our hearts towards what those days are even about. So we're praying and we're hoping uh, that through this intentional kind of slow walk through this poem and through this prophecy, uh, that it will really hopefully give us a really intentional pace towards the cross and towards the empty grave and stoke in us a real hunger for the person of Jesus. And so when we arrive at those days, we've been really kind of seeped in uh, looking at who this, this suffering Savior is, the servant King. Uh, and, and so we're just praying that God would, would, would meet with us during that time. So let me, let me pray, uh, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Father, we love you. And God, we do, we thank you for the faithfulness and the friendship of Neil and Katie. And God, we just thank you for the work that you've done in them and through them and for what you have in store for them uh, in this next season. And God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. You're faithful to to meet us uh, by the power of your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? God, you're faithful to instruct us in your word. You're faithful to to lead and to guide us and to give light and lamp, um, God, to our path through your word. And God, we just pray uh, that as we start in this section in Isaiah, God, that you would uh, give us a hunger for more of you. God, uh, that we would be confronted um, by the places that we've gone to for life and for satisfaction. Um, And God, that we would, by your kindness, be led to a turning away from those things and a turning back to, or maybe even a turning to for the very first time to you, Jesus. Um, But we need you for that. We need you now in this moment. So, God, would you speak to us? Would you illuminate the Scriptures in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, God, and give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and for you? We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 40. The book of Isaiah uh, is kind of like a Bible within the Bible. There's 66 chapters, just like there's 66 books in the Bible. Um, the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are kind of like the first 39 chapters of the book of, of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Uh, it's kind of a comparison and a contrast of Israel's actions, so the people of God, their actions and the things that they were doing, uh, versus the things that like God said, this is the way that you're supposed to be living. These are the ways in which I've prescribed for you to live, and it kind of shows us alongside what, that, what those things are. And that when the comparison, what it reveals, not only in Isaiah, but really in the Scriptures, is that over and over again, Israel, the people of God, have decided to willingly trust in anything and everything except for Yahweh, the one true God. And God is not pleased with this. The book of Isaiah, the people of God here, specifically the tribe of Judah, 
uh, they've been waiting on rescue. And the reason that they're waiting on rescue is that they've been dealing with all these other oppressive foreign nations who are threatening to wipe them off the face of the earth. But instead of waiting on God, they over and over again attempt just to really take matters into their own hands. Uh, it starts, they make a treaty with the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are a brutal people, a brutal nation. A lot of scholars think the Assyrians are actually the ones who invented crucifixion as a form of torture. And uh, not surprisingly, the people of God, instead of waiting on God, they form an alliance with, this, with their enemy, and it doesn't work out so well for them. The Assyrians break the treaty. So the Israelites, again, they try to form another treaty, this time with the Egyptians. Same thing happens. The Egyptians let down the people of God. And then a little while later, the Israelites just surrender themselves to the Babylonians who take the people of God away off into exile. And because of all of this, for 39 chapters, God has been through the prophet Isaiah, so a prophet would be like kind of like the mouthpiece of God, speaking just the words of God to the people of God. He's been pronouncing judgment on Judah for their foolishness and for their rebellion and for their disobedience. And, and the accusation from God and, and what he's telling them, because this prophecy in Isaiah 40, he's talking about something that's going to happen about 100 years into the future, where the people of God will end up in this Babylonian exile because of their own rebellion. So for 39 chapters, Israel has heard the voice of a frustrated God, and they've heard bad news about them. And it could be, for you, you feel like you're kind of in a season like that as well, because you've made bad and foolish decision after foolish decision in an attempt to try to provide rescue for yourself. And it's been just led to like more bad news and more bad news and more bad decisions. It's a cycle you can't seem to get out of. It's a roller coaster you can't seem to get off of. And if that's you, if, if you find yourself in that spot, I have good news for you. You're in the right place today. Maybe not emotionally, maybe not mentally, maybe not even spiritually, but geographically at least. You're in the right place because there's good news that's available for you this morning. The book of Isaiah is pulling together the story of this group of people who do not have a very good track record of being dependent on God and waiting on God to rescue them. And if we could be honest this morning, this is what I love about the Bible, we're going to see just so much of our own story and our own way where we're not so good at being dependent on God. We're not so good at waiting on God to rescue us in important categories in our lives as well. We all kind of know what it's like to wait on God to show up because we need provision or we need healing, we need rescue. And then the disappointment that we experience when we turn to other things to fill in that space. We're in a moment where it's like, God, we really need you. God, where are you? God, would you show up? Would you come through? But we're not really waiting. We're not really dependent. We're not really trusting because we're working on something on our own on the side or we go to something else or someone else to provide what only God can. And then it's like, well, we were struggling first, not waiting on God, so we went to this other thing, and now it's worse, and we've compounded our problems. We, we numbed the need for help with some substance or addiction or pattern or someone else because we really don't trust that God's going to show up, and now we're feeling even lower and the grief is even heavier than before, and we're let down even more. And all across our house today, I know that there's issues and questions and problems where we're just waiting on God to show up and intervene and do what only He can do. And all of us at some level, we know what it's like to have moments in our life where we just want God, we're asking God, where, where are you? And the problem that so many of us have, myself included, 
is that we're so prone to form little alliances and little treaties with the enemies of our hearts and the idols of our hearts. And we form these treaties and we form these alliances as a means to deal with pain and frustrations and doubts and fears around the struggles of life. And we make little treaty with ourselves. So rather than waiting on God or depending on God or trusting God, we take matters into our own hands. You're probably not like this, but in my own life, when something backs me into a corner, I've just noticed time and time again, rather than a first inclination to go to God in prayer, I start to immediately work on, well, what can I do in my own strength, or what could I scheme, or what could I plan, or what could I make happen to solve this particular thing in my life? And we make these alliances with safety and comfort and pleasure and security, and we'll just kind of make sure we shoehorn enough Jesus in there So maybe that'll serve as some kind of like good luck charm to keep us away from calamity. Or maybe your alliance or your treaty is with your own morality. Your meaning and your value is wrapped up in your ability to obey and to abstain. And the tenets of your treaty are, well, if I'm doing the right things, then God will keep me clean and keep me clear from anything that might be difficult in life. And so we're depending on our own ability to perform a certain way as if that will motivate God to keep anything harmful away from us. And what we're going to look at this morning, it's not that the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Babylonians are coming after us, but we all know what it feels like to be hemmed in by life. And we know the struggle of not only waiting on God, but the temptation to form our own little treaties and agreements with the idols of our hearts. And what we're seeing in Isaiah is that it doesn't work out for Judah when they don't trust God. And we know in our own story, it doesn't work out for us when we don't trust God. What, we're, what we are in Isaiah 40, we're kind of at the beginning of what scholars will talk about as the Babylonian exile. And if Judah could rise up and speak to us today, they would say, look, the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. The only thing worse than waiting on God is looking back in regret and shame and saying, I wish I had waited on God instead of forming this treaty or this alliance with my idol or my own strength. And what we're going to learn from these passages and these pages is when we take life into our own hands and we don't invite God in the process, things don't get better, they get worse. And I know that that's all across the room this morning or if online you're watching. We all have failed relationships, maybe failed marriages, failed business ventures. We have financial debt, maybe even physical difficulties because we wanted a certain kind of life and we weren't content to wait on God. We weren't content to do it God's way and seek first His ways and His kingdom. And so we took matters into our own hands, and we did it our way, and it's led to disaster. And we all have things in our life that we've made exponentially worse because we didn't wait on God. We took matters into our own hands, and we made alliances with our evils. How's everybody feeling? Pretty good? You glad you came here this morning? Okay. It gets better, honestly. When we get to Isaiah 40, one thing to keep in mind is that God does not delight in the misfortune of His children. And some of you have a, some of you have a perspective uh, about God like that. Like you think, God, this must be like, God must really enjoy seeing my life kind of fall apart because of my foolishness. But God does not delight in the misfortune of His children. However, when we have had enough of ourselves 
and what our own idol worship brings us, and we throw up our hands and we say, okay, I'm done. I, I'm, I can't do this on my own. My, I can't do this my way anymore. God does delight in that moment because that's where he loves to show up because that's the moment where God can say, finally, you are exactly where I want you to be. Uh, one pastor said this way, we often turn to God when our false foundations are shaking only to find that it is God who's shaking them. We turn to God when our, the things that we've set our lives on, the things that we want to build our lives on uh, that are not from God, that are not of God, when those start shaking, we often turn to God in those moments only to find that it was God in His kindness and in His mercy that was shaking those things to begin with. And it's our desperation often that leads us to dependence on God, and God says, that's exactly where I want you. And that's where God shows up. And if you're not sure how God would show up in your desperate season, I want you to notice what God says to people who have repeatedly rebelled against Him, repeatedly disobeyed, repeatedly disregarded Him. What does God have to say to people like that? And we see it in Isaiah 40, verse 1. He says this. He says, comfort, comfort my people. Comfort, comfort. It's said twice for emphasis. So when, if you're reading something, particularly in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, when things would be repeated, that's how they would emphasize it. They couldn't uh, put it in bold or underline it or anything like that. But that was how you know, like, this is really important. So you have Judah here. They refused to do things God's way, carried off to Babylon. You really don't expect to hear from God comfort comfort. You would expect to hear judgment, judgment, or maybe even for some of you, you'd think you'd expect God to say, I told you so, I told you so. And they know, Judah knows, this is our trouble and it's our fault. Psalm 137 says this, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The people of God are weeping, they're wailing, and they know, they know, they are the ones who have made an absolute mess of things. And maybe you've got moments or times in your life, you might even be in a season of your life like that, where you're like, my life is an absolute mess and it's my fault. I want to point the blame to someone else. I want to talk about, well, it's a circumstance that's outside of my control, but there are seasons where we just know I'm getting exactly what I deserve because I've done the foolish thing. I've rebelled in this way. I've made this bad decision. I've made this poor decision. I'm the one who made this mess. But here in the midst of Judah's weeping and wailing, God says, Isaiah, I want you to get a word to my people. And here's the word. Here's what I want them to hear in their distress, in their sorrow, and in their suffering because of their rebellion. I want you to get a word, and the word is comfort. The, the original idea in the Hebrew, it, it's a word that literally means uh, to breathe. Here's, here's the word I want for them, Isaiah. I want them to, to be able to catch their breath. If you've ever tried to console someone who's just like heaving, crying, and you, and you are next to them, and you put your hand on their back, and you rub their back, and you hold them tight and close, and you squeeze them, and you give them a hug, and you just say, it's okay, 
Just breathe, just breathe. God is saying to the prophet Isaiah, say to my wayward and weeping and wailing children, breathe. It's going to be okay. Comfort, comfort. Breathe, breathe. He doesn't come in condemnation. He comes to them in comfort. A few weeks ago at the AFC Championship game between the Cincinnati Bengals um, and your Kansas City Chiefs, um, Silent fans on the front. I love it. Okay. You know what's funny? Nobody, nobody shouted when I said Chiefs at, at that early service either. So there's a football game coming up called the Super Bowl. I don't know if anybody heard about that. Okay, you are. <laughs> You're polite fans? Yeah. Um, all right. So in this game, it's the last moments uh, of the game, and the, the score is tied, right? It's tied 24-24? Okay. 2020, sorry. Okay, so uh, Patrick Mahomes, who is the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, they're driving towards uh, their end zone, uh, and he scrambles, and he scrambles out of bounds, and as he's about to, as he steps out of bounds, a defensive player from Cincinnati pushes the quarterback from Kansas City and uh, incurs a penalty, which, may, which makes the team move 15 yards closer. The kicker comes in, kicks a field goal. Kansas City wins the game and a trip to the Super Bowl. Cincinnati loses the game and has to go home. The game's in uh, Arrowhead. It's where the Kansas City Chiefs play. Crowd is going crazy. Players are going crazy. They're celebrating. We're going to the Super Bowl. Cincinnati retreats. They all go to the locker room except for one player, and it's the defensive player who incurred the penalty and essentially lost the game for his team. And he's, it's a very sad picture because it's him, and like, I guess unless you're a Chiefs fan, but uh, he's there on the bench and his head is in his hands and he's just completely broken over what he has done. But then there's this really powerful moment where another one of his teammates comes over and he puts his hand on his shoulder and he bends down and he gets close and he just looks him eye to eye and he's consoling him and he's encouraging him and he's loving him in that moment. And, and I thought, well, that's a picture of what God is doing to his people here, except the people of God haven't just made a mistake. It's not like they just had a lapse in judgment. It's not like they just did something and like, oh man, no, they, he's comforting a people like that. God is coming close and putting his hand on their shoulder and rubbing their back and eye to eye, telling comfort, comfort, breathe. People who have willfully rebelled against him for centuries. It's as if God is coming to the people the way that the father comes to the, his prodigal son in the story, this beautiful story in the Gospels that Jesus tells the son insults his dad. He goes to his dad and he says, I want my inheritance in advance, which was the Hebrew equivalent to saying, I, I wish you were dead so I could have all your stuff. Incredibly insulting to the father. And as the story goes, if you're not familiar with it, the son goes out and he absolutely wastes all of the money. He's dirt poor, broke, ruins his family name, ruins his father's reputation, ruins his own name and his own reputation, and he returns home filthy, embarrassed, ashamed, guilty, a complete failure after insulting his dad and insulting his entire family, really. And as the story goes, the dad sees him in the distance and he runs to him, and he says, get him new clothes, get him new rings, and let's throw a party on his behalf. 
That is the God of the Bible, and that is the God that we serve. And so if you're not sure about who this God is, that's the picture. Over and over and over again, in the pages of the Old Testament, in the pages of the New, that the Scripture shows us of who this God is. There's no way that I could know everybody's story in the room or if you're watching online, but I know that there's stories, I know even in my own story, moments full of regret and shame and embarrassment. And there are those of us that carry wounds and scars of our own doing. And for some of us, they haunt you every time you're in a room like this. And so we, you were just constantly wondering, well, what does God think of me? How, do, how would God intend to meet me? Comfort, comfort. Just breathe. I'm here to pick you up. I'm here to restore you. Why does God respond this way? Because God understands that guilt and shame and condemnation will never fundamentally change the structures of our heart. It's only grace. It's only the unmerited and unearned favor of God. The, the superabundance of God himself in the person of Jesus towards wayward sinners, towards enemies of God. God says, I will love you in the most extravagant and extreme way at, 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 at infinite cost to myself. I will show kindness and mercy and love to you who willfully rebel against me. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2. He says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. It's never our repentance that leads us to God's kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. We get it twisted because we think like, well, if I will repent or if I'll perform or if I'll do this thing or if I'll stop doing this thing, then God will show kindness to me. But that's not the gospel. That's not the story of the scriptures. That's not who God is. God initiates kindness towards those who were his enemies at just the right time, the scripture says. We who were enemies of God, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we would have the righteousness or the rightness of Jesus over our lives. But what really stands out in verse 1 isn't even that God is saying comfort, comfort. That is incredible. That is good news. That is what lets us catch our breath. But it's that he says in verse 1, he says, they're my people. Isaiah's been prophesying about these people through five different kings, 39 chapters of their rebellion, and you would think that Isaiah, in this moment, would take real exception to the way that God is talking about these people, that God is so adamant about the relationship, because Isaiah has been chronicling all of the ways that they've been traitors against God, but God's not shy about it. He's claiming it. He's claiming them, no matter how bad they have been. God is a covenant-keeping God with his people. If there was ever a justifiable out of the relationship, Judah has committed it. But God says, no, they're mine. 
and for you and for me, independent of our behavior, God says, you are mine. The world might look at you, and you might even look at yourself, completely broken, lost cause, beyond anything redeemable, and God says, no, 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 they're mine. And I want to comfort them. I want them to catch their breath. And I want to restore and repair and renew and reconcile and bless these people. Or you might look like an outward success, but inwardly feel like a complete failure, and God looks at you and says, it's not based on what you do. You're mine because that's who I am. Now, some people get kind of nervous when there's preaching like this because it's like, hey, I think we're missing the full gospel here. It's nice that you're talking about comfort. It's nice that you're talking about kindness. It's nice that you're talking about grace. But come on, there's another side. Where is it? Okay. Verse 2, God gets to it. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's been paid for? Sin. God says, let's call it what it is, Judah. It's not dysfunction. You're not just acting out. It isn't just a miscalculation. It isn't just a mistake. It isn't just a trigger from some past trauma. Let's put a name to it, Judah. Let's call it what it is. It's sin. And God calls it exactly what it is. So, so how can God, knowing full well about their sin and their rebellion against him, also say they're mine? And he tells us right there in verse 2. And the NIV that I'm reading for, it says it's paid for. And in the ESV, it says it's been, it's been pardoned. And, and that word pardon, it's in, in Hebrew, it's a technical term. It means to receive with pleasure. Uh, when God kind of set up the system of sacrifice, there were specific detailed instructions on what they were supposed to do. They were to go to the temple, and they would buy an unblemished animal. They would purchase this unblemished animal, and it would be inspected, and it would be presented by the priest. The priest would look it over thoroughly because it had to be without defect. It had to be perfect. And before slaughtering the animal, he'd look it over and over again. And if it passed the priest's inspection, they would receive it with pleasure as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the people. What Isaiah is pointing to, what we're going to see over these weeks, is he's pointing us towards Jesus. And so God... He can't just look at our sin. He can't just look at the rebellion of his people. He can't just look at their evil and just be like, it's all right. No big deal. I'll just look the other way. He can't do that because of his holiness. He can say, you are mine, not because of your performance, because you don't measure up, and not because of your goodness, because you have none, but I can say of you, you are mine because of the ultimate spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, who died in place of you for your sins. And I pardon you because I receive with pleasure his sacrifice, his perfect life, his perfect obedience on the cross. That's the gospel of Jesus. We are in covenant relationship with God because of the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus. Amen. And the good news gets even gooder. <laughs> Probably should be even more gooder. 
Verse 3, look at verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 4, every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. Back then when a king would go to a town for the very first time, they would never allow the king to go to a town for the first time uh, using pre-existing roads. They thought it was a security threat, so whenever a king would arrive or travel to a new town for the very first time, they would build a new road. And the idea is, uh, one, it was way more safe, but two, they wanted to guarantee the arrival of the king to that particular place. And look at what God says in Isaiah. He says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley lifted up. Isaiah is describing a road that is perfectly straight, perfectly safe, guaranteeing the arrival of the king. Isaiah, he's saying the king is coming. Jesus is guaranteed to come to you. This prophecy is given 750 years before the birth of Christ, and that prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus is like, uh, he's like earnest money. So if you've ever had to like, purchase a home or you're doing a business venture, or you're making some large purchase, and you want people to know what I start, I'm guaranteeing to finish. You'll put down earnest money as a sign of goodwill and as a sign of faith that what I'm saying I'm going to do, I will complete. Jesus is earnest money of the plan of God. His plan to ultimately renew and to repair and to restore everything that's broken. My kids' children's Bible says to to make everything sad come untrue. Jesus is the, the arrival of Jesus is earnest money on the plan of God. And so it means for us, and the band's going to come up, we're going to enter in a time of communion now, but it means for us that in this time between the arrival of Jesus, which has happened, and the second coming of Jesus, which will happen, is guaranteed that we are to be about the work of this King. And the Scripture teaches us that the work of the king is a proclamation and a demonstration of the love of God, proclamation of the truth about who God is and and the way and the life uh, that He is and a demonstration of the love of God. And we see in the pages of, of the Scriptures, we see in the person of Jesus, what is God like? What is God all about? And we see the way that Jesus navigates through life, and He's showing for us this is what we are to be about. We are to be a people who are committed to justice and righteousness. We are to live intentionally on mission and not get caught up in the cares and the concerns of this world. We are to live counter to this culture. We are to not make alliances with the idols of our heart and the the idols of our day. And what we are seeing in Isaiah 40 is no matter how far gone you think you are, no matter how much you think that you've ruined or you've wrecked, God is waiting for you not with condemnation but with the word comfort comfort. And he says to you, if you're, if you're drowning in your sin and you're drowning in your rebellion, breathe. I'm coming to you not with condemnation, but with comfort. And when you do come to him, the good news is that he declares over you, and when you come to him in repentance and faith, you're mine because your sins have been pardoned by the ultimate spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 40 is the reminder to each of us, no matter how far gone you think you are or how much sin has broken in your life, Jesus is the one who came to restore and rescue and redeem and repair.
to offer deliverance to those in captivity, to anyone and everyone who would repent and believe into him. And I know I was saying to Jeremy this morning, I said, well, I'm just going to preach the gospel again. It's amazing how it never gets old, which is why every week there's two elements that we take, the bread and the cup. And if you have these things near your chair or around where you're sitting, if you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to invite you to eat and to drink um, in remembrance and in celebration of this gospel. And you might be here this morning and you have got 39 chapters of sin in your story. 39 chapters of sin that has been done to you in your story. But this moment with the bread and with the cup is a moment to stop and stare and to celebrate the God of Isaiah chapter 40 who comes to you right now in this moment with the words comfort, comfort. Because your sins have been pardoned by the spotless lamb of Jesus Christ. That's why we have comfort, because of the Son, Jesus, His perfect life, His perfect sacrifice, His resurrection, and His promise to return. And because of this faithfulness of Jesus, you can be His. And so if you're here, or you're listening this morning, and that doesn't describe you yet, today can be a day of salvation for you. You simply come to Him in repentance and in faith which means you're turning from trusting in yourself or trusting in something else in this world and you're saying, I'm done. I can't do it anymore on my own. And so God, if you're saving, save me. Because of Jesus, we have comfort and not condemnation. Because of Jesus, there's a mercy that's greater than any mess that you might have made out of your life. And because of Jesus, this God can be trusted in any trial with a hand on your back and an embrace that brings peace and comfort. Comfort, breathe. I'm here. You're mine. I've sent Jesus to restore you. And so we have the bread, and if you take that bread and you remember the perfect life, the body of Jesus, the Scripture says, was broken, was crushed, not because of his sin, but because of yours and because of mine, and you eat in remembrance of who he is. And then in the very same way, you take the cup, the blood of Jesus. Because the scripture teaches that our sin has to be paid for. God just can't just look the other way and ignore it. It has to be dealt with. And it was dealt with perfectly and finally, one time for all time, by the spilled blood of Jesus on his cross. There's, death is the wage of our sins, the payment. It's what's due. And Jesus died that death so that you and I could have life. And so take that cup and drink. Um, we always end this communion moment with, with singing um, because singing is a way to celebrate. And I can't really think of anything greater to celebrate um, than what our great God has done on our behalf. So let's stand and do that now.